it's really tricky to catch them between the amen of prayer and children's church. When I'm saying in Jesus' name, amen, they're hearing, get set, go. (laughs) But we'll take that energy level. We envy it a bit. Um, As you know, we're working our way through the book of 1 Peter. I invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 Peter. We're in chapter 4 this morning. One of the themes of Peter has been this idea of, of citizenship, where we are now citizens of a different kingdom, adopting words that unusual, words like exile, stranger, alien, and so on. <clears throat> and you may know that to adopt citizenship in a new nation is also to adopt duty. Duty. In the United States, for example, to become a national is to inherit certain duties. There are certain rights that you get in becoming a citizen of the United States, to be sure, but it also comes with duties or with obligations. For example, a new citizen, a citizen of the United States, must now pay taxes. That's right. You didn't see that coming, but it's true. But to be fair, in all honesty, we actually pay less taxes than many other developed nations do, The Danes, for example, pay twice as much in taxes as we do. Imagine never seeing 56% of your paycheck. A new citizen must not only pay taxes, but he or she must also be loyal. In that citizenship exam or in that process, one will be called to be loyal to the United States and to her constitution. A new citizen must also perform jury duty. If called to perform jury duty, don't fear. Less than 1% of people, U.S. citizens, will actually perform jury duty. And if you ever find yourself in that bind, you just tell them that you always make decisions in accordance with the law of Moses, and you ought to be excused. (laughs) A new citizen must also bear arms. There's an oath of allegiance that's read at the naturalization ceremony. It's the final step of becoming a citizen. And at that moment, one must agree either to bear arms or to perform non-combat service if the government deems it mandatory. And lastly, a new citizen must obey the laws. There's the criminal justice system that will defend you if you need it. It will also prosecute you if you need that. So to take on the citizenship of a kingdom is to adopt its duties and its culture and its values. So it is also in the kingdom of heaven. Peter has written that it's by the great mercy of God that we have been born again. We've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you, says Peter. That makes you a citizen of the kingdom of God. Effectively, that makes us strangers and exiles in this world. So there is work to do for our new kingdom duty. That word might sound not exactly like the sweetest of sentiments. It kind of has this mechanical or rigid feel to it. 
But I want to show you this morning that there is a beauty in duty. And Peter addresses it in our passage today. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. In this passage, God will call you and I to pledge to four duties so we can live as obedient kingdom citizens. Now, this is no entrance exam. This is no checklist. There is a beauty to God's plan. Our passage, I hope, will encourage us in very practical ways. I'm going to give you a few of those ways here to begin. How is this an encouragement? What's so great about this? Well, this will reveal to us what I would call the swagger of the short-term pilgrim. Every Christian is a pilgrim. We're now aliens to this world. We are passing through this world. It's not our home. It's not our destiny. More than that, every life is short. James writes in chapter 4, verse 14, you are just a vapor that appears for a little while, then vanishes away. That means we have a limited time to magnify Jesus Christ. And every life has a swagger. The New Testament uses the term walk. It's a way that we live. It's a certain way that we live or a certain kind of walk that we have in our lives. Uh, Presently, the the men in the church are studying through Colossians 1 in their small groups. They're going to read the exhortation, walk in a manner worthy of Christ. And we know this, that Christians walk different. There's a different swagger as people watch our lives. If you're in 1 Peter 4, you'll notice that we do not walk according to verse 3. In verse 2, we do not live the rest of our earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. And what today's passage does is it fills in the duties for that new walk or that new swagger. This passage, secondly, is encouraging, Lord willing, giving us signs of spiritual growth. Do you ever ask yourself, am I growing in Jesus? Am I growing in the Christian faith? Read verses 7 through 11. You may not be perfect, but there is very something healthy about the soul when the body obeys Scripture. You know, I was thinking along these lines when I was reading this passage and preparing for today, Um, I looked up how Alistair Begg handled this message. I commend his ministry to you, by the way. Um, Alistair Begg has a ministry online called Truth for Life. You can look that up. But, But he entitled this passage, Vital Signs. In other words, we can measure the basic functions of our Christian faith using this passage. I mean, we not only want to profess Christianity, we want to practice it. And we want to do it according to God's design, and that's what we have here this morning. Well, thirdly, this passage also gives us the secret to a strong church. This passage is about how you and I function as a group together. In the first six verses of chapter 4, Peter discussed our relationship to those outside. We now turn to our relationship inside. And here's what's going to happen if we begin to do the things we read today. If each one of us starts to do these things, we will become a strong church. A strong church is an obedient church, 
faithful to the duties that God has designed, that God has given her to fulfill. And I contend that a main reason our culture is what it is today is a deficit of strong churches. Evil is always going to take a mile when you give it an inch. And if strong churches don't stand up and do something, she will keep taking. And left unchecked, evil is going to swell, it's going to surge, it's going to be what you see on the news today. I mean, not only are churches refusing to work at these commands that God has given, but they even want to redefine these commands or even disregard them and to partner with darkness instead. Listen, if you want to make a difference, learn the secret, which really isn't a secret at all. It's verses 7 through 11. Peter writes in verse 7, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment and sober spirit. For the purpose of prayer. Above all, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. So that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belongs the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, we begin in our first point this morning, verse 7, pledge to pray soberly. Pledge to pray soberly. You may have observed, verse 7 begins with something of a headline of a statement there, which of course has implications or it has a result, if that is true. Peter's going to pivot and give two commands in this verse, be sober, be sound, and then it's going to be for the purpose of prayer. The start of verse 7 connects back to verse 5. There we learn that the Lord is ready to judge both the living and the dead. It has this futuristic end times feel to it. And Peter's written, the end of all things is near. Really, Peter, is that your prediction? I mean, does he not remember the Lord's words right before he ascended to heaven? Jesus told Peter and others, it is not for you to know the times or epics which the Father has fixed. Is Peter being another one of these doomsday prophets? Is he a date setter? That's to say nothing of our vantage point. Here we are 2,000 years removed from this prophecy. The end of all things is near? Yes. We know this because the Bible is 100% infallible, meaning it's incapable of error. In fact, in his second letter, Peter's going to write, we have the prophetic word confirmed. You know, one of the challenges of that statement is the way we might want to read it. I think the initial thought might be about the end of the world. We read this and think Peter just predicted the end. I think he means something just slightly different. And I believe this for three reasons. I think first, we need to consider the perspective. God, whose spirit inspired this passage, he sees time differently than we do. 
In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, mockers ask, where is the promise of his coming? And they're looking around, looking at these Christians who said, get ready, the end is near. But where is this Jesus mocking the faith? And Peter says, do not let this fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. God does not count time like we do. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. For the sake of the lost, praise God that he is patient and he delays. So God tracks time differently than we do. Secondly, there is the issue of the language. The Greek word for end certainly means end, as in the termination of something, the conclusion, the end. But it also means the last part of something, the last portion of a process. John the Baptist used the exact same wording in his preaching. Repent because the kingdom of heaven has come near. And he's using it of the final phase of God's process. The promised Messiah has come. That's the same way Peter is using that word here today. In other words, with the advent of Jesus, his crucifixion and his resurrection, we can now say the end of all things is near. We're in the final phase of God's redemptive plan. It's something we could not say before the Messiah came. That's what Peter means. I'd call this uh, more of a final chapter than a final sentence. And then lastly, there's the application that would point to this interpretation. Language like this, language about the end, it's meant to move people to action. Recently, the United Nations convened a climate summit in New York City. And there were speakers in that summit who warned about, quote, the end. The world is becoming, quote, unhinged. Quote, we're in the final stages of what actions are needed. We've, quote, opened the gates of hell. By the way, you can take care of the planet without ascribing to climate change ideology. There is a whole worldview behind what you're seeing out there, and I'll tell you this, it's not meant to bring glory to God. It's meant to have a world apart from the Creator. It's meant to have a world apart from the one who created it and the one who sustains it. The point I'm trying to make here is that language about the end of all things, it's meant to move people to action. And that's precisely what Peter does. But what does he do? He points us Godward. Therefore, as a result of living in the age in which you live, be of sound judgment. Be clear-minded. See things for how they truly are. Be realistic about your world. Be sane. This word is used of a man in the Bible following an exorcism. They came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down and in his right mind. Same word, right mind. He says, secondly, be of sober spirit. This command finds its root in sobriety, or in terms of uh, the opposite of drunkenness. 
but it also has to do with the mind being free from anything intoxicating. Look back at verse 3. It's a sobriety from sensuality, from lust, from drunkenness, and so on. These are things, sins, which cloud the mind. Sin does that. It it creates a separation or a breakdown in our relationship with Jesus Christ. It, It blurs our clear focus of him. In light of the era in which you and I live, we are post-cross, we are return-ready, we're to be of sound judgment, we're to be of sober spirit, and for what purpose? Prayer. Prayer must be our pledge as kingdom citizens. Peter knew its power. There's a great quote from Thomas Watson, an old Puritan. He said, the angel fetched Peter out of prison, but it was prayer that fetched the angel. That was Peter's experience. He prayed and God delivered him. And Peter's written about prayer already in this letter, back in chapter 3, verse 7. How we live impacts the potency of our prayers. It's mostly directed toward husbands. In chapter 3, verse 12, one standing before God impacts if he hears prayers, Now we learn that prayer is needed in light of the times. I believe, we know, that if you pray alone, God hears you. God is well pleased to listen to prayers. Through Christ, prayers are welcome. If you pray, keep praying. But I also believe that if we only pray alone or at home, something's missing. The context context for our passage this morning is corporate. The context for our passage has to do with God's people, the group of exiles, or the church. And I believe that if this morning you struggle to pray, that may very well be the answer to that struggle. Your brothers and sisters in Christ or this local church, that may be the answer to the struggle of prayer. Make time to pray with your church family. Find a group or a part of the church where you can can pray and let that help you and fuel your prayer life. I mean, that that may be what we need to, to begin to hit our stride in prayer if we struggle to pray or have a hard time getting going. You see, God calls no Christian to go at this life alone. And as he relays these duties to us this morning, God also gives us the grace to be able to obey what he calls us to do. And many times you're going to find that the local church is is that grace. So pledge to pray soberly. Secondly, pray to love fervently. Excuse me, pledge to love fervently. Pledge to love fervently. This is verse 8. Above all, he writes, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love one another. Of course. This is biblical Christianity. We all know that. But why would Peter place that here? Why does he bring that up kind of in the middle or the end of his letter? What's so unique? Well, Looking at verses 1 through 6, we learn there that suffering and persecution eventually close in on the Christian community. Now we learn in verse 7 that the end of all things is near. 
When these things happen, as though life isn't hard enough already, love for one another will be tested. And Peter says, above all, love. Let love be your primary attitude. If you and I are going to live out this call of the New Testament, we need to love one another. If duty is something that's monochrome, love brings it color. If duty is something more official, love makes it personal. If duty is cold, love brings it warmth. Love really powers the engine of the Christian life. Peter says our love must be fervent. It's so important that Peter said it twice now in his letter. Back in chapter 1, verse 22, he says, fervently love one another from the heart. And back there we learned, as it applies here, that we must not only love, if love is the baseline, we must love fervently, deeply or earnestly would be another way of saying it. The word is used of of an athlete who is stretching or who is straining and reaching out. You can imagine one completing a, a track race, trying to get out in front and grab that ribbon first. Love is a choice. One commentator said it's capable of being commanded because it is not primarily an emotion, but a decision of the will leading to action. Love here has to do with those in the room, your fellow Christians. Again, in our passage this morning, three times Peter's going to point around this room. He's going to use the words one another, verses 8, verse 9, verse 10. And he wants us to love one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Love forgives. Sins committed against you by another Christian, you can forgive if you love them. Love will free us from grudges. Love will release us from bitterness. Love pauses or even stops that loop that goes on in our minds when we've been wronged. Look back at chapter 1, verse 22 for a moment to see just how this works. I just mentioned this verse. In this verse, chapter 1, verse 22, Peter's given the exhortation to, to fervently love one another. And as we fervently love one another... As we do this, chapter 2, verse 1, we can put aside malice and deceit and envy and slander, and we can overlook these sins in the lives of others because we love them. We woke up and said, you know what, today I'm just going to love them. It doesn't matter what they do to me, I'm going to love people anyway. And this is, by the way, exactly what Jesus Christ does. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul prays that believers might comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. In other words, any way you look at Christ's love for you, there's this incomprehensible love to grasp. In fact, the next verse, Paul writes that it surpasses knowledge, so much as though we can't comprehend the love of Jesus. This is a love that sought you out. It is a love of Jesus that came for you. It found you. 
This is a love that, that picked you up and washed you off and brought you home. This is a love that clothed you and fed you and cares for you and shelters you. This is a love that when you get up and walk out the door and begin to wander into those dangerous places again, this is a love that comes out the door and follows you and finds you again. This is a love that pursues you and brings you back. This is the love of Jesus Christ. It is a fervent love covering a multitude of sins, better said, covering every sin. Do you know the love of Jesus Christ this morning? Have you experienced this love? Jesus loves you to the point of death. He died for you. And the Bible teaches that if you come to him saying, Lord, I am a sinner and I believe you died for my sins, you will be forgiven. That love is placed upon you irrevocably forever. When you die, you see Jesus face to face, not as your judge, but as your friend and as your Lord. For those who've received his love, pledge to love fervently your brothers and sisters in Christ. Our love, like the Lord's, is to be patient and kind. It should not envy. It should not insist on its own way. Our love not irritable or resentful or rude. Our love seeks the good of others. Pledge to love your fellow believers with a fervent love. Well, thirdly this morning, Peter teaches us to pledge to host graciously. Pledge to host graciously. This is more or less an application of our previous point. Verse 9, be hospitable to one another without complaint. The Bible has quite a bit to say about hospitality. Beginning in Genesis, from Abraham hosting three angelic visitors, all the way through to Hebrews, where we learn that they're entertaining angels unaware. Narratives and gospels and epistles, they're all modeling hospitality or commanding it. Well, the world in which Peter wrote required it. The gospel, very early on, spread by means of traveling ministers. People like Paul, Titus, even Jesus, these names may come to mind. And this is the age before the Hilton and the Hyatt. This is the era before the complimentary breakfast. These ministers, as they traveled, they needed lodging and they needed feeding. And for a Christian to provide a place to stay, if they granted a place for them to stay, that was a huge practical need met. Peter Davidson, in his commentary, writes, quote, By 100 A.D., that's about 40 years after Peter wrote this letter, by 100 A.D., the expectation had been codified due to abuses. That is, food and housing would be provided for a maximum of three days, after which the person was expected to move on or to get a job and be self-supporting. The provision of hospitality was important because of both the limited means of many Christians 
and the questionable character of such public places as they were to stay in. So hospitality, it it, it occupied an important place in the early spread of the gospel. But read this verse carefully. Peter isn't talking about that, is he? His Christians were to be hospitable to whom? One another. That's the second appearance of one another in our text this morning. Remember, this passage is about you and I. It's about the local church. It's about this new kingdom of which we are now all co-citizens in. And as he writes this passage, he writes almost correcting. Be hospitable to one another without complaint. You know, sometimes when I read these verses, I wonder what precipitated the author to write that. In other words, Who's the guy whose name got back to Peter that he had to write this? Hey, Thelma, thanks for inviting over the, <laughs> thanks for inviting over the Snyders again on Friday. When are they going to leave? Last time you invited the Smiths, their kids drank all my soda. I mean, who's complaining that Peter has to say this? I almost said the last name of someone in the congregation there, so I didn't want to get the backtrack. <laughs> This is what happens when you come up with things on the fly in your your head. Um, But the word for complaint here, it means to speak in really low tones, to to murmur or to mutter about something. They're they're complaining. And maybe it is that someone grew tired of hosting. Maybe someone overstayed their welcome. Peter calls us to, to pledge to host graciously. In the New Testament, hospitality is often, it's often connected to love. Love and hospitality, they they go hand in hand. In John, or third John Gaius, a man named Gaius is hosting strangers and they're testifying to his love. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 2, hospitality, it came right on the heels of love. Let love of the brethren continue, verse 2, be hospitable. And we see that in our passage today, don't we? In verse 8, verse 8 is about love, but verse 9 is about hospitality. One way to love one another is to be hospitable toward one another. And we ought to say as well that hospitality can be accomplished in in many different ways. In other words, you don't need to host a, a traveling evangelist to be able to do this successfully. You don't have to put someone up in your home overnight to check off the box. I think one of the most compelling aspects of of New Testament hospitality to me is sacrifice. Not only did the ministers have little, remember, they're traveling and they're finding places to stay along the way, but those putting them up, they also had little. There was a sacrifice going on in, in two different directions here. You know, those hosting shared what they had. It cost them something. They made a sacrifice to be hospitable. And I think that's a great point of connection for you and I in our day, that hospitality requires sacrifice. I think one of the leading ways that that we're going to sacrifice in our day will concern our time, how we're using our time. Certainly, if we host someone, it may cost us financially if we buy food, for example, and prepare a meal. Now, certainly, if we're not particularly people persons, it may 
come at a cost to our comfort. I understand that. But, but giving our time, that's a, an important sacrifice in our day. And I want to say this lastly. If we, if we pledge to do this, you're going to get to know people in ways you would not otherwise get to know them. I mean that in a good way. You see, something about the environment of the home, it just changes the dynamic of fellowship. People tend to open up and talk to you or share things in in a different way. And you may even find in doing all of this that you as the one hosting, if you extend hospitality, the greatest gift may fall to you for opening up your home and serving in that way. So pledge to host graciously. Well, fourthly and finally this morning, pledge to serve faithfully. Pledge to serve faithfully. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks is to do so as one who is speaking the utterances of God. Whoever serves is to do so as one who is serving by the strength which God supplies. God reveals what you have, what you do, and what that means. What do you have? You have a gift. God has given you a gift. Now, we often say spiritual gift. Technically, that term isn't in the Bible, but we know what we mean when we say it. It's helpful. But without exception, every Christian has been given a gift by God. We know some of them. There are four passages in the New Testament that have a list of them. I'm not sure those lists are exactly exhaustive. There may be other gifts. But you notice in verse 11, Peter groups the gifts into two broad categories. There are the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. Some believe these gifts may be an ability that we have, something God gives us from birth, but it's then empowered by the Holy Spirit when we become Christians. Others believe the gift uniquely comes at the moment of conversion or or right around there. When we become Christians, we receive a gift. Some believe that gifts can even come later in the Christian life. There's places in the Bible that seem to call us to pray for more gifts. But the Bible teaches here that you have at least one gift, and some may even have more gifts. Each one has received, writes Peter. So what are you to do? What does God want you to do with this gift? Literally, serving it to one another or serving it toward one another. That's how that text would read, literally. In other words, the gift that God has given us is not to be used for our own benefit. We benefit when we use it for others. The gift is meant to serve the church. It's the third appearance of our one another today. It's meant to bless others. It's meant to build up the church. As we noted at the outset, if we, all of us are doing this, what are we building? We're building a strong church. And what does all this mean? It means that you are a good steward if you obey. A steward is a household manager. Jesus used this term in his parables He tells a story of a manager who was entrusted with food rations, and he tells another story of a steward in charge of his master's house. That's you. God has given you a gift, or he's given you gifts, plural. And you're to use them to serve others in your church, 
You're to be a good steward, using them in accordance with the grace God's given. This message today is a call to Christians. You have to consider your duties toward one another, pledge to do these duties given by the Lord. There's a story told by, by Ted Tripp. It's, it's in a book entitled Shepherding a Child's Heart. By the way, we've begun that study for women on Wednesday nights. It's a wonderful opportunity for women to come out to the church. We're doing that study on parenting. But in this book, one of his sons has gone through this phase in his growth. And it's a period where he wanted to raise pigs. Evidently, pigs drink a lot of water. Unfortunately, the source for the water for their pigs was nowhere near the pen. So this water needed carrying. Each day, this 11-year-old would fill up the water, and he'd take it out to feed the pigs. And as he's doing so, he's stumbling around. He's spilling the water. He can't run a hose because the water would freeze in the hose. And we can all think back to when we were 11. And just imagine how this 11-year-old felt after time about this whole idea of having pigs, being in charge of feeding them, and water, and all that. Well, Tripp notes that he assured the son that, first of all, he could do it, keep going, and that God can help you. He also mentions two conversations he's had since that season of life. The first is a conversation he had with his neighbor, who witnessed this season. He thought that the boy had been overburdened by Tripp, that it was too much. I believe he even commented how he wanted to go and help the boy. But another conversation took place with the son, who reflects back now on how valuable those days had been for him, hard as they were, difficult and challenging. Believer, God has given you work to do. He is a loving Father who knows exactly how to grow you and develop you as his child. Four of those ways were explained this morning. Buckets of water God is calling you to carry. Now listen, God isn't giving you these commands because he needs us to do them for him. And God isn't giving us these commands because he thinks you have all kinds of time and he just wants to fill it with stuff to do. Now you'll find, in fact, to obey these commands, you're going to have to make time for God. He calls you to pray and to love and to serve because it's good for you. These are the means of grace that God has given to his children to grow them together in the families in which he's placed them. And he loves this family, this church, very, very much. He's going to use your faithful obedience to show that love. So that as Peter concludes, in all things, he may be glorified through Jesus, to whom belongs the glory and the dominion forever. Let's pray together. Father, you are a loving God. You were the Father to all of us 
who named the name of Jesus. And we trust you to know what is best for us. I pray for your church today that they would see the great value of this passage Peter has shared. And I pray for this church that you would knit this church together in a fervent love as we seek at times imperfectly, as we seek to do what you've called us to do. I pray, Father, that these things would not be a burden, but that they would be a joy. And that if in any way we struggle to obey or to do what you've called us to do, you would meet us there, Lord, and pick us up and help us. Lord, this is your church. We are your church, and we want to honor you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.